intro, who here is familiar with the Colossian Forum? Just give me a little raise of hands. You've heard of us before. Great. All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know you guys in the back there. Hello, hello. Uh, well, I'll do a quick introduction, and then we can move into the agenda. Um, I realize some of the screen is cut off here. Let me see if I can re-share it, um, and so that you can see everything. It looks awful. Let's try to do that. Um, well, let me. I'll speak and see if I can do. Actually, going to unplug this. So I'll give you some of the history while I'm going to figure out some of these technical challenges. So we are about 12 years old. We're going to be 12 in January. So organizationally speaking, you know, we are um, we are you know like 12 12 year old boys. We know we probably should wear deodorant. Maybe we do. We don't. Probably a lot of heavy um, body spray at this point. Well, I'll see if I can uh, fix that in a second here. Um, but we're just learning a lot about conflict. Uh, we got our start hosting, you guessed it, forums. Hosting forums. So we had um, scientists who were also Christian. I have to remind myself to not say Christian scientists because that's something different. But scientists were also Christian on the opposite side of the origins debate. Young Earth creation versus um, Christian evolution. And so they were speaking into this divisive topic in the church. And so what we had them do is actually model what does it look like to engage across difference with someone who is following Jesus. And so what we were trying to do is get them to say very true things. To say, hey, I think your view is very damaging to the kingdom of God. And because you are an image bearer of Christ, I cannot simply 240 character tweet you into condemnation. I have to do something different. And so how do you disagree about theological issues that matter, that have implications on how we live our lives, about what we're teaching in the classroom, what our kids are talking about, right? How do we disagree and do that faithfully? Um, and this is why Colossian Forum exists. And so we would gather people, they would model this way of being in the world, uh, but then granting organizations said, that's fantastic, how can we equip the Big C Church to do this work? What can we do? We said, great, let's do some small groups. So we came up with Colossian Way Small Groups. Um, and so we have four topical curricula, very non-divisive topics, women and men, uh, you know, looking into gender roles and biblical depictions of such, political talk, how do we have conversations around hotbed political issues, uh, origins is one, and then the big one is human sexuality. And so our goal with the small groups was not, it is not, never has been, to help people make a decision about what they believe. Our goal with the Colossian Way small groups was to say, how could we help form people in a different way of engaging conflict when hot topic issues are presented? What does it look like to follow Jesus when it feels like everything's on the line, all of it matters, and I don't agree with this person in front of me. And so we essentially created what we call like a conflict liturgy, kind of a five-phase approach to walking through those different small groups. So they're 10 weeks, 90 minutes long, lots of big commitment to do that there, um, but so powerful because our theory of change at the Colossian Forum is that we have a formation issue. We have a formation issue. Most of us are formed 
uh, perhaps poorly, uh, by whatever 24-hour news cable station you listen to. It doesn't matter if it's Fox or CNN. Both have something in mind, and their agenda is not to try to bring us together. Their agenda is to be as spicy as possible, to get as many clicks as they can, and to incite you to do whatever politically they want you to do. And so we said, we got to have a different way moving forward. How can we form ourselves differently when we're engaging in these topics? And that was great. But this is where my introduction comes in. Um, I was doing ministry work in New York City. Um, I had gotten my uh, Master's of Divinity, felt the call to go and plant churches in New York. Uh, and it was the most difficult, challenging thing I've ever done in my life. Um, we had about 35 plus nations represented in our churches. And so you can imagine that conflict with Rife, with whether it was uh, cultural difference, it was uh, language differences, denominational differences, religious differences. There's just so many things happening all the time that I was constantly navigating. Um, we had ties to uh, Redeemer Presbyterian and Redeemer City to City, which is the church planting wing of Tim Keller's church out there. We had people mentoring us, Tim Keller himself, all of our different staff members that were there. We had the Evangelical Covenant Church come around, fund us like crazy, send us through cohorts and trainings and coaching, you name it. And not one time in my seminary training or in all of the equipping that I was given in church planning did anyone teach me about conflict. And so you can imagine when 2020 hit, my wife and I are operating out of a 500 square foot studio apartment. She's firing people from the bathroom floors. I'm leading, you know, uh, Bible studies in the other same room of this one room building. Uh, right. And so like, we're trying to figure this life out. That conflict started to happen. My church did not know how to engage conflict. Well, I didn't know how to engage conflict. Well, and we had a falling out. I ended up leaving that church still there and thriving, uh, but I left and I had a conflict wound. And so I was like, Who's doing this work? I've not been given any equipping in this. I don't know many who have. Who's doing this work? And so I would love to say that I went to the Lord in prayer, but I went to Google and I typed in Christian conflict. Where is this? And boom, Colossian Forum popped up. So I started on November 3rd, 2020. Uh, if you know what that day means, it means election day. So that was fun. It was a good ushering into uh, the Colossian Forum. And my first task was to do market research. We've been doing these small groups, um, which was great, uh, but I wanted to know, what do our partners need? And so I called, you know, probably wasn't any of you in this room, but I did call some schools. I called pastors. I called nonprofits. And they all said two things. They said two things. One, we need a refreshing of vision around conflict. We don't see it as this, this opportunity for spiritual growth and witness that your organization claims it to be. Uh, it feels laughable. And two, I need capacity. I'm always the one leading conflict. I need other people to do conflict with me. Who are those folks? And so this is when we decided, what if we created Wayfinder? What if we took all the foundational tools, practices, systems, formational work that we were leveraging to construct small groups and instead gave them to Christian leaders to construct what you need. So schools have come in, gotten trained in this, and on what would it be like to reimagine what a parent-teacher conference looks like in light of these new practices and systems? What would it look like to reimagine what a community conversation around human sexuality looks like with our parents 
based on this training. What would it look like if as teachers in our, our own conflict that we have with each other, how could we reimagine it looking differently if we were practicing these different practices and, and uh, putting together these different systems? So this is where Wayfinder came from. Could we equip, in a two-day leadership training and development program, leaders to come up with a new vision for how to do conflict faithfully and not do more things, but reimagine old things to incorporate those, to start changing our culture around conflict, and that is what birthed Wayfinder. So, agenda, I know it's half cut off, but you can see the important parts. Vision, I'm going to basically give you some vision today. We only got an hour, so I'm going to move quickly. My goal when you leave today is that you just have some hope, that you see it's being done differently, uh, that hopefully you get a couple of practical tools where you can say, okay, I don't necessarily know all the things that do differently, but I feel like I have a framework to start trying. So that's the goal for today. I just want to give you some hope and give you some framework. Sound good? Yes. Yeah. So we're going to talk about Christian conflict transformation. I want to define that for us, what it is, what it isn't. I want to talk about truth and love together. I know so many people, and probably some of you that are in this room, we struggle with, is it, do I have more truth, or do I be more loving, or making this difficult decision, which one is it? So I want to give you a way to think about that. And this is where I want to hang all the way to this time together, is on our North Star and test for success. When we enter into difficult conflict conversations, what guides us, what leads us, and how can we have an iterative process to practice so we can get better? Um, and then I'm going to briefly touch on some of the five practices of Christian conflict transformation, um, just so you know them, you can hear them. Uh, and then I want to save you about 15 minutes in the end so you can ask me some questions, because I'm sure you'll have a ton. Um, so that's where we're going today. I also figured I just would huck all of the visuals that I have at you into one slide so you could just be immersed in bright colors. Um, but I promise all of that will make sense as we move forward here. So who here, who here has had any issues with any of these topics? Anyone? And I don't want to be up on this. You all live this. You don't need to know that this is hard. But what I want to tell you is Wayfinder's been around only since April. Uh, and the people that have been raising their hands the most for this work have been in schools. Um, we were like, oh man, churches are going to do this quickly. And some have, but... By and far, people from schools have been like, can you come and train us? We desperately need this. And we have trained over 330 people from 80-plus organizations since April. We've been very busy. Um, and 90% of those folks have been from schools. And every time I show this slide, it doesn't matter what part of the country I'm in or what part of Canada. I love to say we're international. Canada loves us. I'm in a lot of Canada, Canadian cities. <laughs> um, they all go, yep, those are our issues. So you're not alone. You're not alone. You're not the only Christian school that can't figure this stuff out. You're not the only Christian school where this is crushing you. Um, this is rampant everywhere. And we truly believe it's because we have a formation problem and that we need to be formed differently. And so that's what I want to offer you all today. So this is what I think of when I see conflict. This is, this is me. I'm an Enneagram 9. Anyone else Enneagram in the room? Good, good, good. I have my, my, some of my conservative friends like to call it the pentagram. We're like, oh, you're into that new age stuff. No, 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 it's good stuff. Um, but if you don't know Enneagram, it's just a personality test that talks about, um, that categorizes more by our motivations rather than our character traits. So what drives us? Um, I'm a nine, so I'm a peacemaker in health, so I can see different sides of an argument. I can try to bring people together. Um, but in my unhealth, I'm a, I'm a peacekeeper. 
I'm like, oh, don't go there. Don't have that conversation. So I'm hyper aware of all the conflict. The whole room feels like it's on fire. And sometimes all I can feel like I can do is drink my coffee and say, this is fine. <laughs> this is fine. It's all burning down. This is fine. But maybe a better picture, a better picture is this. And here we have, um, depending on who you are, uh, this either gives you anxiety or it uh, looks beautiful, right? If you're a parent of small children, you're like, who's cleaning that up? Right? Um, but I see beauty. I see difference. I see diversity. I see it colliding. I see it being beautifully displayed across this backdrop. And the question that we ask and what we're hinging our entire organizational life on is this. Is what if, what if conflict could become the key to renewed relevance, deeper discipleship, and fresh witness. What if, and I'm not knocking Bible studies, what if we didn't need the next Bible study, but if we could just move closer to those hot topics in formative ways that look like Jesus, could we actually do the deep work of discipleship our organizations are craving? Could we do that? And I just want you to know, spoiler alert, we're saying yes. Yes. Uh, oh man, this is a silly little cutoff. So sorry. So the confession, mission, vision, and method of Wayfinder is what I want to walk through with you quickly. Um, so Wayfinder is one of our modes in which we are bringing Christian conflict transformation to our organization. So we still have our small groups. So if you think about, oh, it's this different way of doing conflict. What is that? Um, and so Wayfinder is one of our modes of training organizations. And so our confession, our confession is that all things hold together in Christ. All things hold together in Christ. Doesn't mean there isn't evil in the world. Doesn't mean that things are broken. Doesn't mean that God winks at all the broken stuff and says it's fine. But it means that God cares about it more than every single one of us. It means that God is active and alive and at work. And that he has a plan for that that's already uncovering itself and revealing itself. And so our work in conflict is not to try to manufacture control. Our work in conflict is to lean into and be attuned to the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit is already doing. It's the difference between having a powerboat mentality where I'm going to fill up my gas tank, point to that point, and I'm going to drive out there no matter what waves, what comes... And it's rather having a sailboat mentality. So I'm going to put up my sails. I'm going to trust that the Lord will provide. And I'm going to listen to the winds of the Holy Spirit. And go, Lord, what are you already doing in this space? Because you're already doing this work. Our mission is a Christian community that acts Christian, especially in the face of conflict. Now, again, we're a little disappointed that churches haven't picked this up as quickly, although that's changing. However, I would say this. You as educators, I feel, have more formation hours than any church ever will with your kids, with your parents, with your staff. Your ability to change the culture around conflict, the potential there is off the charts because you're with each other all the time. And wouldn't it be amazing if people... Whether they believe in the death and the resurrection of Jesus or not, are like, I want to go to that school. Because those people do conflict well. They're faithful. I don't know about this raising people from the dead stuff, but man, when it comes to conflict, they're a beacon of hope in this darkness that I see every day. And I truly believe that for all of you in your schools, this is possible. I've watched it happen. I don't want to see more of that. 
And our mission is to equip Christian leaders to serve confidently in a divided culture. We want you to have confidence in this and to move and not be threatened by conflict in your organizations. We want you to be equipped well. And we're doing that with Wayfinder to train leadership teams to think, act, and lead like Jesus in the midst of conflict. So typically what happens, I will say, we do conflict. People go, Kevin, Kevin, Kevin. I've done conflict management. I've done conflict resolution. I would say this is not that, and I want to be very clear as to why. Um, so funny story, the first Wayfinder training we ever did was with roughly 40, 50 schools in Canada. We were in Ontario. Um, so I had this, this principal who was sitting right in front of me, uh, and I started to talk about the differences. And he goes, he goes, Kevin, can I tell you something? I said, sure. He said, I have been trained... In FBI terrorist negotiation tactics. Not kidding, he says this. And I said, what kind of parents go to your school? Uh, and he said, and everything that you're sharing with me is the opposite of what they train me in. Everything's the opposite. You always hold your, your cards close to your vest. You don't, you don't share enough information. You try to give as little as possible because you want to make sure you have the upper hand. You always want to be in control. And he goes, and you're telling me to do the opposite. I'm like, yeah. Go figure that Jesus would be countercultural when it comes to conflict. And so the belief of conflict management is this, is that things will fall apart if I don't hold them together. And if I'm honest, as I was a pastor in New York City, that was my mantra. Oh, I better be the most culturally intelligent. Oh, I better, I better be really, really sensitive to all these ideas. Oh, I better, I better have that meeting or that service or this thing. I had all the reliance on me. I didn't need Jesus. I was just going to do it. The belief of Christian conflict transformation, again, is that Christ holds all things together. We're seeking out where that partnership with the Holy Spirit is rather than trying to manufacture our own sense of control. Our posture with conflict management right, is that conflict is threat. It's a threat. How many of you, maybe don't raise your hands, just you can raise them in your head, have been brought into a budget meeting that's already been being worked on for six months, it's 95% of the way done, and then someone says, does anyone have any feedback here? Does it feel like in that moment that your feedback is welcome? You're laughing. I know your answer, right? It's a threat, right? What are you going to do? Give the wrong answer and then redo the work for the, next, the last six months, right? Conflict is a threat. That's the posture of management. Christian conflict transformation says that conflict is normal. It's expected. If 1 Corinthians 12 is true, which I would say all of us would say a hearty amen to that, right? Then because the elbow is different than the knee, is different than the eye, is different than the ear, we should see it differently. When we propose a budget that has incredible implications for our community, every single one of us probably have a different prioritization we would put if asked. So conflict should be normal. Imagine if we really thought that it was normal and expected. What would that look like in your community? The goal of conflict management is to end the conflict. And can I just be empathetic here? No one wants to be in conflict. I hate conflict. I lead, an organiza- I lead in an organization that does conflict, and I don't ever want to be in it. Um, we want to end it. But the goal of Christian conflict transformation is to follow Jesus. And what we mean by that, because it can sound trite on just cursory glance, is that we want to ask this question, what is the next faithful step? What is the next faithful step? 
is you're having a hard conversation around human sexuality policies at your school, right? Following Jesus in that might be challenging, right? It's probably not, here's the decision, here's the policy, and we run this, right? It might be, gosh, who are the other people we need to have in this room? What voices do we need to hear? What community members do we know this is going to impact the most? What voices are going to be loudest that maybe we should talk to you beforehand? How do we follow Jesus? Even though we might do the same policy that we're trying to drive forward, how do we follow Jesus in the midst of those difficult decisions? And we want to slow down before rushing to making ones that resolve the conflict too quickly. The focus of conflict management is the substance of the conflict. And we'd say science, facts, figures, they all matter. It's really, really important. But the process and the substance are of equal importance. How we go about conflict is as important as the decision made from resolving it. Um, And we would say the ends do not justify the means. We've seen enough churches... Large churches, pastors uh, and, uh, from all over the country that have watched their churches implode and explode because it was a get on the bus or get off the bus mentality. And they might have had the right idea, went about it the wrong way, and we're still wrong. Right? And we can all do that. We can have the right policy, the right idea, this is truth, and go about it the wrong way and be wrong and not look like Jesus. And we say we want to make sure we're examining the process and the substance well. And then the mode makes sense, right? If all of conflict management is true, if conflict is a threat, I have to hold it all together, I need to end and resolve this, and we just need to deal with the substance, then I better be darn good at defending. I better have the best argument. I better be the most intelligent. I better have read up on all of the scholarship. I should know my strengths of my arguments, my weakness of my arguments, and I better be really good at exposing the weaknesses of yours. Does that feel good to anyone in the room? No. What we're lobbying for with Christian conflict transformation is covenantal communication. Covenantal communication. And there's kind of three key things when I say that. No, it's a, uh, a lot to unpack there. Uh, but we think about covenant, right? God makes covenants with his people. People make covenants with each other. Jonathan David is an example. And so what we see is, right, like, you can have maybe a different belief than I and still belong. I'm still going to engage with you, stay in relationship with you, even though you might not believe like I do. I'm going to say, because you are an image bearer of Christ, that I cannot condemn you, I can't uh, dehumanize you, I can't make derogatory terms about you, because that is not helpful to this conversation. Uh, And we need to continue to hold that tension and covenant with each other, even in the midst, particularly in the midst, as we disagree with each other. So we're going to engage in covenantal communication, and you'll unpack, that'll unpack a bit more as we move through more of this presentation. Um, let me see if I can unshare and reshare this really quickly. Um, <coughs> Do you want me to try to zoom out with the remote? I think it's my computer, though. It's my only problem. You can try it if you would like. I just don't want to mess I'm going to keep, can everyone see that okay? I I want you to see this whole slide. Um, And I'll speak to this here. So, um, our biblical foundation, everyone asks, right, like, where do we see this in scripture? 
right? It doesn't matter what Kevin thinks. It matters, can we see this in Scripture? Um, where do we see Jesus doing this work? And so I want to give you kind of an aspirational example, but also, um, I think, an important one. And so I love this story of the woman caught in adultery. It's in John 8. Um, my joke that everyone laughs at, and I still think is very funny, is that I prefer to call it the men caught in hypocrisy, uh, because it is. Um, <laughs> They put in those titles later on, by the way. That's not housed in Scripture. They just have the story. So the biblical biblical foundation of this right is great. These Pharisees, they come to Jesus, and they go, they throw this woman at Jesus' feet, and they go, Moses says to stone her. What do you say, Jesus? Right? Is it mercy or is it truth, Christian school leader? You can't have both. Which one are you going to pick? Are you going to be more loving? Are you going to stand true to what Scripture says because truth matters? And I'm not making fun of either of those. They're very important, right? But you see this. You feel this. This is you. And I love what Jesus does. And I want to talk about the woman first, right? He, he says this, and I'm going to get to this in a minute, but he says, let the one without sin cast the first stone. Right? The accusers drop their stones. They walk away. He scoops up this woman. Notice he doesn't wink at her sin. He doesn't say, it's okay. Adultery is great, right? He says, he goes, I love you. Where are your accusers? They're not here, are they? Yeah. Now go and sin no more. And Jesus shows us in this moment where maybe sometimes we need to be loved rightly before we can behave rightly. And he holds that tension with her where he doesn't wink at her sin, but he gives her truth and he loves her in this moment. And he calls her in this moment to deeper discipleship with himself. What I also think is interesting, and if I'm honest, the more and more I read scripture, I used to read myself and seeing myself as the woman. What am I doing in this world? And where's this goodness of Jesus? The more that I lead, the more I see myself in the Pharisees. And so the Pharisees come. Boy, this is fun, everybody. I don't know know if you believe in spiritual warfare, but someone does not want you to see this presentation. Um, Let's reconnect and see what happens. Um, but Jesus comes, he speaks to these, uh, he, uh, he speaks to these Pharisees, they give him truth, and notice what Jesus does here, he doesn't say, hey, be more loving. He gives them more truth. They're quoting Leviticus at him. Jesus, the law of Moses says, you stoned this woman, we caught her in the very act, you know what the law says. Jesus says, yes, and... Leviticus also says, let those without sin cast the first stone. And I really believe he's calling them into deeper discipleship. These people who are craving truth. Jesus, we've not made truth apparent. We need to make sure we're not sugarcoating. Jesus, we need more truth. And he goes, yes, let me give you more of it. And what it does, it literally disarms them. This act of pure violence that's about to happen. And they drop They're stones, and they walk away. But I don't think Jesus does this, right? We hear this preached and, yeah, get the Pharisees, right? I think he actually is engaging them with where they're at. He's going, yes, more truth. Great, here's more truth. What do we do here? And I think he's giving them a formative experience. Like, they're in their prefrontal cortex, right? To drop those stones and walk away. They're having to think about, what do I do with these other passages, and I think at this moment you see Jesus call both the woman and the Pharisees into deeper discipleship with himself. And this is where we see, if I think if we're formed properly, I think this is available to us all as Jesus followers. 
But I know what our current cultural context is like, and I know some of that feels totally out of stretch of what we're possible, what's possible for us, right? I get that. I get that. So let me go to another place in Scripture. Pharisees come to Jesus and go, Lord, what is the greatest commandment? Uh, spoiler alert again, they're not curious, right? They're asking him the question, Lord, there's over 600 plus Levitical laws. Which one do you think is most important? Hey, Christian uh, school leader, what do we love most for our kids? What value are we going to hold up highest, right? Not curious where we're going to focus and prioritize. They want to hear where you're not going to prioritize, because then they gotcha, right? So Jesus is in this gotcha moment. And I love what he says, because Jesus doesn't give one answer. He gives two. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And the first and greatest commandment, uh, this is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And I love this because he goes, and this actually fulfills all of the law. It fulfills all of it, right? Every jot and tittle, he says. So they're going, which of these 600 plus Levitical laws are most important? And Jesus goes, all of them. And here's two commands that help you do it all. And he gives that to them. He's noticed the wisdom and the genius of Jesus in this moment. And so what I want to give you, and I'm going to see if I can do this and do... Yeah, that's fine. That's fine. That'll do. That'll do for now. I want these to be burned into your retinas. What is your North Star and your test for success? Your North Star and your test for success. If you, if we never see each other again, which I hope that's not true, y'all are a good time. Uh, I want you to know these things as you move into your next conflict conversation. What should guide you? And as we contemplate and reflect afterwards, what helps us to think through how we can do this better in the future? So the first is this. It's our North Star, our love of God and our love of neighbor. And so when we say love of God, we mean not just the words of Jesus, but the ways of Jesus. Where do we see what Scripture says? And then through a cruciformed reading, a reading of, of, of Scripture that holds Jesus high, how do we see that actually play out? How does Jesus engage culture with that truth? What is he doing? We'd say that is love of God, the words and the ways of God. But also, we got to love neighbor. And so when I say neighbor in this context, I mean that person who is sitting oppositionally to you on whatever that idea is, whatever that conversation topic you have is. But I also mean, because I know the conversations we're having don't just rest with just me and you. Right? If we're having conversations about race, it's not just about me and you. It includes other people. If we're having conversations, hard conversations about abortion, it's not just me and you. It's other people. So who else in that conversation needs to be loved and cared for and spoken highly of, not just honoring them? So you'll notice I've given you a lot of things to hold in your head that's probably going to make your head explode the first time you try to really do this. That's the point. This is to slow us down. When I first learned this, the first conflict conversation, this is exactly what my face did. <laughs> I couldn't think through all the things. How do I love God? How do I love neighbor? What does it mean in this moment? Who am I talking to? What do they need? What am I hearing their deep desires are? Right? And it slows you down, and that's the point. It is so easy to hop on Facebook and write a post that just blasts that other side. It's easy. It is hard to go, how do I love God and love neighbor as I respond to you? So we want to do both of those things. So that's your guiding starts, right? That's in front of you as you move into those hard conversations. The next area is our test for success. 
And your test for success is the increased fruit of the Spirit, and is the decreased works of the flesh. Uh, when I did this presentation at 1045, someone nailed it. Can anyone name the fruits of the Spirit without cheating and looking at the screen? Name them all. Anybody? Ooh, we got one in here. All right, we'll start here. We'll see if you miss any. We'll come back to you. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Kindness, right? Perfect. Faithfulness, yes. Nailed it. Forbearance, perfect. Okay, good, 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 good. You all went to Awana like I did as a kid. Wonderful. I always have songs. I don't love. I love. I love all my Christian churches. The conservative ones that I grew up in were just all of this. Everything was a song. So literally, if you were in my brain, you would just be dancing along with me right now. But right, the increased fruits of the spirit. Here's a hard truth. I don't need the fruits of the Spirit with people who think theologically like I do. I don't need joy, peace, and patience. I have that. I don't need to rely on God for that. I don't need forbearance with people who think politically like I do. We, organizationally as Christians, I've seen this. I've seen Christians completely operate outside of dependence on the fruit of the Spirit because talking to people like us means I don't have to exercise it. It's the truth. Right? I need joy when I'm at my Thanksgiving dinner table with that family member. You know what I'm talking about, right? I need patience and forbearance when I'm moving into hard political conversations that pop up as I'm pouring gravy on my mashed potatoes, right? That's when I need that stuff. And I will say this, as you practice, the fruit of the Spirit is often going to feel like the death of those seeds to bear that fruit the first time you do it. I have walked away from conversations going, oh, that was really great. I noticed that I didn't want to hop into my car and scream expletives. That is the fruit of the Spirit increasing. (laughs) Great. I didn't want to pull my hair out when that topic came up at that really inopportune time. I heard, I actually heard that person's question, and I wasn't formulating a response. The fruit of the Spirit is increasing. Right? So that's where we see the increased fruit of the Spirit. And then the decreased works of the flesh. Right? And a lot of our Christian communities would love to beat up on these ones, right? Sexual morality, impurity, debauchery. We always forget basically whatever is on Instagram. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy. We forget about those ones. What do your social media feeds look like? That's mine. And so we're, we're going, right? You're moving into that hard conversation. Okay, how do I love God? The ways of God, the words of God. How do I love my neighbor? The neighbor right across from me, the ones we're talking about in this conversation. And then you get to the end and go, did the fruits of the Spirit increase? Did they increase? Did the works of the flesh decrease? And guess what? You're going to fail and go, woo! It was much more factions and envy than it was joy and peace. And this is where the grace of Jesus comes in and goes, great, try again. Try again. This is an iterative process that focuses on contemplation, which I think our culture so desperately needs, that gets us honest about how things are going, and it helps us to go, okay, let me try again, Lord. And you're going to have to start with the five-pound weights before you move to the 50s. Trust me, I've seen this in the gym all the time. People want to jump to the 50s. You've got to start with the fives, and once you do, you can continue your way up. And you'll get more creative Because what we want here, we don't want a bunch of people that are going, Kevin, tell us what I would do. What's the next step of this conversation? I go, I don't know, 
And I know if you love God and love neighbor, I believe the Holy Spirit will give you that faithful next step. And I want us all to be creative in that space, to learn how do we move forward with those difficult and challenging conflict areas in our lives? How do we iterate and become great contextualizers of this great truth that Jesus gives us in Scripture? And so, your biggest challenge is always around truth and love. Amen? Is it more truthful? Is it more loving? We showed how Jesus navigated that. But I wanted to kind of showcase it in a quadrant. So you could go, oh, I kind of see where this goes. And you won't be surprised if you want to be on that upper right-hand one. Always, always, always. And as a pastor, I love alliteration. So we're going to call love compassion. And we're going to call truth conviction. Right? So compassion, conviction. Amen, anyone? No? Okay, just me? Great. I'll amen myself. Don't worry, I'll do it. Uh, so low conviction, low compassion. I would say I rarely see people here. But low conviction, low compassion, this is where apathy I've heard falsely said before, the opposite of God's love is God's judgment. That's not true. The opposite of God's love is God's apathy. I don't love reading horrible Facebook posts. I don't. But when I see it, I try to go, I know they're not apathetic. I believe they care about something deeply here. This is really connecting with them. I don't agree with how it's manifesting, but I really know they care. They're not apathetic. And so we, we definitely don't want to be here in the low conviction, low compassion area. This is where dishonesty is. This is where intentional evil can occur. If I'm honest, in unhealth, I can shift here. And I don't want to be here. But low conviction, high compassion is hangout culture. This is you do you. I'll do me. Let's, let's, you know, what's true for you is true for you. What's true for me is true for me. Relativism can exist here. This is a lot of tolerance. Uh, we say self-gratification because, uh, in one of our vernaculars, we, we exist in a lot of uh, ambiguous, unexamined, ambiguous space. You'll find you'll get into a hard conflict conversation. You'll start to go down a path where you're like, I don't know if I want to talk about that. And you go, oh yeah, we think about the Bible the same, right? Generally, we think about it the same. right? I don't want to examine that space, right? And this is, where the, it's, this is gratifying for me because I feel comfortable if I think you think like me. I am happy. I feel safe because I can assume you all believe the same things when we know it's simply not true. Um, and this is where sur- surface unity, right? I assume we all think the same. We don't want to be there. Uh, these are the churches that I've grown up in. Uh, high conviction, low compassion. This is call-out culture, right? This is us and them. You're either on the bus or you're off the bus, right? We believe these ten tenets. If you have any complexity or nuance in them, this isn't the place for you. And I've grown to have a lot of empathy for these spaces because it's crazy out there, y'all. It's disorienting. It's exhausting. And in strong black and white leadership, at least on the surface, feels good. Great. We don't have to talk about that thing. We know what we believe here. But the reality is, is there are some complications there's some things to sift through. There's verses that are challenging. Uh, and how do we sit in the midst of all of that and really do that deep, interpersonal, spiritual work? Um, and we would say, we want you to shift. We, we want you to bring up those really hard truths that you believe to be true. But instead of call out, what if we had to be a call in? Hey, we don't do this in our school here. And you still belong. We want, to, we want to nurture you to that stage. We want to get you to that spot. 
This is not our culture here. And we love you. And please keep being a part of us. How do we have a call-out culture? This is high, a calling culture. How do we have high conviction, high compassion? This is Christ-likeness. Right? Us as humans are frail. We're the ones that falsely bifurcate this, put it into categories to go, am I being more truthful? Am I being more loving? Jesus is the full embodiment of both always. Right? He just exists as such. And so it's helpful to think, I need to be more in tune with who Jesus is rather than being more truthful or more loving because you'll fall off into these categories if that's your focus. How do we be more like Jesus? This is where covenantal communication exists, where we can name, frankly, here's what I'm concerned about with your position. And you're a Jesus follower, I'm assuming, and we have to do this together. Right? Christian conflict transformation exists here, but also deep unity. Because imagine what would happen if we could actually examine those difficult conflict spaces and find that even though we don't agree, I actually feel more seen, loved, and heard in that conversation with you. And I know it's just going to be the same if I go anywhere else, right? So here, how can we have deep unity in the midst of not having uniformity of thought? So we want to be in that upper right quadrant. So I want to speak to these five practices just briefly and give you time to ask some questions. I have one helpful story I'd love to tell. Uh, we'll see if we have time for that. I think it'll be good. Um, but these are the five. Now, typically with a, with a school, I'll come in and I will train uh, probably 18 to 20 leaders in this work. There's folks here who've gone through that. So the two-day training goes through the vision of this much deeper, the practices interpersonally, but then the last part is systems. How do we actually systematize this? How do we bake this into our organizational rhythms? That's what we teach. Um, and so these are the five core practices that we kind of build everything on. So in a, I, I'll do usually like a two or three hour workshop to introduce some of this to people, where we actually talk about it for five to seven minutes, and then you do it actually do the work, right? We believe in practice and that it needs to form us differently, so we do the work. So just so you know, those are things that are available to you all after today. And if you want next steps or you're curious about more, grab one of the cards. Go to wayfindertraining.org is a great place to start. But I want to talk to these briefly just so you have an idea of what they are. Um, and then I want to open it up for questions. So this says go towards, although you can't, you can't see it. Go toward. Um, this is all about building relational trust. Relational trust. Who is that person in your organization? Right? If you are, if you walk into the teacher's lounge, you're exhausted. You know you need coffee, but you see that person getting coffee, and you go, "I don't really need coffee." Who is that person? That's who I want us to think about. How can we make bids for connection with them? Who are the they? Who are the them? How do we come into closer contact? Because if I can be in relationship with you outside of conflict, when conflict arises, we have some relational trust. I will be less defensive with you if you know me before we start only talking about hard things. The second one is go Godward. This is the awkward G. How do we in the middle, in the highest heat of the conversation, actually go, can we stop and pray? I'm not really listening to you. I'm too mad. Can we be vulnerable in that space? How can we go to scripture? I was just reading um, this, this morning, or was it yesterday morning in Mark, and I go to Mark 7, chapter 15, and it's all the Pharisees asking about defilement, and Jesus says, it's not what goes into the mouth, but what comes out of the heart, and what comes out of the mouth that defiles you. If we sit in just that, 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 that one verse, super short verse, 
it's going to be very difficult for me. I'm going to out myself real fast that I don't believe that or I don't want to follow Jesus with you if I just try to shame you or manipulate you into believing what I believe. I'm really actually concerned about what's coming out of my heart that examines and shows what's really in my soul. So we want to talk about going Godward. So we pray, we can pause and pray, we can go to scripture. This is also not a place to weaponize, but it often can be, right? If you're having a conversation about human sexuality and say, hey, can we pause and pray? I'd like to go to Romans 1. We're not really curious, right? We're trying to, let me give you the hammer. Let me show you where I'm right. We don't want to do that. That's not what we're saying. Most of scripture is written about how we interact with each other, what our Christian commitments are to each other, rather than what we should believe. Both are important, but there's a lot more about how, so this is what we're doing at Go God. Number three is get curious. And when we say get curious, you guys are in the business of getting curious. You ask great questions. What we're talking about here is how do we cultivate a spiritual and physical posture of humility? Right? My wife is a great mirror. We practice this stuff all the time. She will often say to me, Kevin, your question content-wise was incredibly curious, but your eyes, your face, and your posture tell me another story. And it's true, right? I can say, why do you believe that? I'm not really curious, right? I'm calling you out on what you believe. So how do we get curious? How do we cultivate that posture? The fourth one, and probably the most important one, is go deep. How do we get at the deep treasured loves um, of someone's position. So if you think about someone's position as an iceberg, what's exposed on the surface, um, if it's, say, it's pro-masking, for example, and you are about masking, right? The, the water line is the passion line. Typically, it's anger. So if you ask someone, I'm pro-mask, why are you pro-mask? Well, I'm angry. What are you angry? Well, I'm angry that we don't care about other people, that we need to protect others, that their health is important, that our Christian witness is at risk. Okay, what are you afraid of? Well, I'm afraid... That if we don't wear masks, here's all these things that can happen. We're going to you know, jeopardize or immune compromise. We're going to hurt those that are older. Um, and that uh, people are going to think that we really don't care about them. And I go, okay, what's, what's the love underneath all of that? We love our community. Hmm. What would it look like to get to the core of our positions, the treasured love that feels threatened, and to speak from vulnerability to someone who is on the other iceberg side? What would it look like to go, hey... I really love my community. Here's why I have this position. Because I, I, I'm, I'm afraid. Right? This is vulnerability. I'm afraid I could lose this really treasured love that I have. And that's what we talk about teaching going deep. And the fifth and final one is get right. You're going to bomb. You're going to fail at this stuff. And when you do, how do you seek forgiveness? How do you confess? How are we much more interested in our impact rather than defending our intent? How do we clearly apologize about what occurred? And then how do we create this pattern of confession that says, hey, the, the, the expectation is not that everyone's perfect, that we're all going to get it right. The expectation is that when we get it wrong, we can name it, we can repent of it, and we can move together, back, move together strongly than we were before. So those are the five practices. I've thrown a lot at you. What's your questions? Have any questions? Got about 10 minutes here for the top of the hour. Um, anything that's been bubbling up in you as we've been talking today? Just please don't talk over one another. <laughs> I'm just wondering, is your goal to change people in these conversations? Like, is that, you know, you're always like, my, he's right. 
fight and change them so we can have conflict conversations and I can change them. Right? Or what is the you know, big picture goal? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so the goal is not to change them. The goal is to name our own agendas because we all have them. Um, the goal is really to go, how do I follow Jesus in this? Like, how do I find the next faithful step, which might not be to convince you you're wrong. It might be to understand your story. Maybe that's the next faithful step. Um, and it's not to say that you never make a decision. You all have to make decisions. We make decisions every day. This is to say, how can we get outside of our normal knee jerk into oh, make a decision, moving this way. You go, how do I stop? How do I give myself time? And that, yeah. Any other quick questions? Yes. Would you say that, let's say you're applying this strategy, would you say that the, the them, the other, recognize your, like, what you're trying to do in the process? And just thinking about applying it and seeing how living in that space would be so easy for someone to interpret that in a negative way. I'm just wondering, is it, is it visible? I'm hoping so. It's like yeah. much more hopeful in that sense. So, um, if I'm honest with you, right? If we think about going deep. There's a passion line. The first thing that's going to happen is someone's going to try to attack you verbally. You'll probably model this a lot and not have it reciprocated. Uh, here, here's my big sales point. This will be really, really hard. It'll probably kick your butt a lot, and eventually, you'll possibly see fruit. But this really, truly is the way of following Jesus in this. Um, but you, it, it, what I say, especially as you start to practice, find those people who, your small group that you go, I know I can, I know I trust them, I know I can talk about some of this, and they'll hear me. And pace yourself and create healthy boundaries around those that you're going to move into the space where they are not going to reciprocate for you because it will be hard at first. Yeah. Do you find it's easier to move from low conviction? high compassion, that bottom right tolerance, mm-hmm. up, or easier to move from high conviction, low compassion, moving right to yeah. the upper. It's a really, it's a really good question. Um, I think it really, the short answer is it depends. Um, it depends on your own story, makeup, and background. Um, I've seen, I've seen both I mean, to be honest, when I, ha- when I have conversations about what I do, and people don't really know what we do, uh, conservatives think that I've got an agenda, that I'm just trying to, trying to get you all to be more loving, and my more progressive friends think that I, I'm not loving at all, and that I'm just trying to beat people with you know, unexamined truth. So um, it, it is a formational move that takes a lot of energy to shift into that top, top right corner. What strategies have you seen that move so I consider myself higher in conviction, mm-hmm. although I, I spend time in all of the quadrants. Yeah. <laughs> um, but also have compassion, but I, I don't know how to move people from low conviction, high compassion, without sounding like I'm obnoxious. <laughs> Um, so one of the things, so going deep is a great practice. Uh, one of the great, one of the best questions you can ask is, what's at stake in this for you? Uh, when I did this uh, the presentation at 1045, uh, someone had spoken up and was like, you know, I get this, I love it, but like, 
darn it, truth matters. And I feel like we sugarcoated the gospel, and I feel like people don't care about what's true anymore. And what I could have done is say, well, that doesn't sound very compassionate, or, you know, I could have moved into myself, and I just said, what's at stake in this for you? Sounds like something really important may be lost if we don't uphold that truth. What is that? And really just allowing people space to be present to that. Um, and you'd be surprised at what sometimes the answers are. You know, I, this, These things have to be true. Why do they have to be true? Well, they have to be true because I've seen that this is what it says in Scripture. And Jesus is calling us to this. Okay, so what happens when we fail in that? Well, we disappoint Jesus. Maybe that's an answer. Well, I don't know what the starting point is, right? But like, we lose our Christian witness. Or people, they don't know what they're called to anymore. Or whatever that is, right? That's something we can start to have that conversation um, so I'd say going deep, whether you're low conviction, high compassion, right? Someone's like, we need to be more loving. Tell me, tell me more about that. What's your story around us needing to be more loving? What people groups have you seen be unloved in church spaces, right? And you'll probably find out that either they personally have experienced a lot of neglect or abuse or trauma or people they know have. And so they're vying for these people that they believe Jesus cares about, that they've watched others wield truth in ways that is really abusing power rather than empowering others with truth. And so there's all, like, I, I have no idea where the conversation will go, but honestly, just going, what does it look like, right? Follow Jesus. Uh, love God, love neighbor. How do I love this person in front of me? Who are the people you care about? How have you come to believe what you believe? And that's what all of this is kind of designed to help people do. So let me tell a quick story and I'll release you. Sound good? Mm-hmm. Quick story. My first, my first experience practicing Wayfinder with people was at church. Churches in Canada. And they had just written an eight-page memo, chapter, verse, chapter, verse. It's why they were pro-masking, why that was the way to go, why, um, why this is the true way of following Jesus. And, this is where they lost me at the end, that if you're not believing all of these things, you may not be a true follower of Jesus. I said, and they said, can you help us get this out to our, our church body? And I said, well, let's wait on that. Let's pause. <laughs> I said, I go, you know, in full disclosure, like, you know, I was in the middle of New York City in the pandemic. I'm vaccinated, basking. I think that's all great. Um, I said, how, is, how are the people on the other side? So if we think of the, the iceberg, right, going deep, right? Um, so the position, pro-mask, pro-gather, iceberg. I was like, how have you thought about those people on the other side, the, pro, the pro-gather side? And they said, well, I've read their Facebook. I know what they think. And I was like, oh. If I read your Facebook, I'm not sure I'd be on this call, right? Like, this is important that we do that work. What do they say? And so I said, what if you take the next two weeks, you set up some Zoom calls, and you go through that with them? Um, and they said, okay. Uh, and I said, before that, let's, let's go deep with you. Why do you care about masking, right? It's kind of what I talked about in Go Deep, right? We took ProMask. The passion line and angry. They were angry because they had immunocompromised people in their church. They had um, uh, seniors in their church that were um, at risk. They were concerned that their Christian witness would be broken, that people wouldn't think they cared about them if they were gathering. Um, they had all these concerns. And I said, okay, you know, great, got to that bottom, that fear, like they care about their community. So they went to go talk to their pro gathering folks. And I said, so what was that passion line? They said, well, they were angry. I go, what were they angry about? Well, they were angry that you think they don't believe in science, that they're, that they're stupid, that they're sheep, that you know, they just listen to their conservative news stations and don't listen to you. It's like, yeah, that's painful, isn't it? They go, yeah. And, I, and they go, what did you learn? I go, well, they actually do believe in science. They, they believe in a lot of it. And they're concerned because those immunocompromised people are isolated and the suicide rates are going up and the mental health pandemic's going up and the church is doing nothing to care for them. Oh, 
okay, what else? And they said, well, they also realized um, that those retirement community folks, those seniors, are literally, scientifically, we see dying of loneliness because no one can come in and visit them in their senior living home. They're dying. And I said, so what are they afraid of? They're afraid that we might survive the pandemic but cripple everyone for life. And I go, what's that deep love under there? I said, well, they love their community. I said, get out of town. You mean both love your community? Now, it doesn't mean that we don't love things wrongly or have misordered loves, right? Um, But I said, wow, that's interesting. So what they were able to do from there, because they were able to speak across that vulnerable shared love, they could move forward in mission together, right? The pro-masking people had not thought about any of these things because they were so concerned about building their eight-page memo about why this was the true way of following Jesus. So they said, hey... Go do that work. Find us free mental health resources. How can we get that and equip people with that? Um, uh, Can you start doing some work on where we can meet and gather outside safely? Because we know the isolation is really damaging people. The really crazy part was when they were able to name that people couldn't go into those retirement homes or those senior living facilities because because of the danger of COVID. The pro-mask people who were getting vaccinated then were able to take some of them and go, could you go visit them? Because... We, not all the pro-gathering people had a problem with the vaccination, but they were hesitant to get it first. They go, oh, we know you all have. Could we get some of you to go and visit? Because they're really, they're having a hard time. So you see this way of like working together, even though that church never changed their policy. They engaged and said, hey, even though this is the way that we're moving, you see things that we don't, and we need you. Would you join us in this? Would you help us as we name these other pieces of this problem that we can love and care our community together? And they're still having conversations around masks and vaccinations and COVID protocols. And those are all good things. But they don't agree. And they're together. The fruit of the Spirit's increasing. The works of the flesh are decreasing. And they're loving their community well. Very aspirational. But I just wanted you to hear that that's happening. uh, And that it matters. And that it's possible for us. So thank you all for your time and being here.